How is everybody doing today? That was unusual. <laughs> I thought something was happening in the building, actually. It's like it's cracking, the world crumbling. Now they're clapping. Super. All right. Um, it's good to see many young people here uh, this week. I think I was, believe that I was the, the, the youngest person here last week, which, yeah, actually, Heaven, were you here last week? You were? Thank you. Please, please continue to come. Maybe be very insecure when I'm the youngest person in the room teaching. <laughs> so, uh, so that's good. All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray, then we'll get into our time together. Most gracious Heavenly Father. I thank you, Lord, for your word, the honor that it is to study it, the, the great privilege uh, that it is to, to have you speak to our hearts through it. So I pray, Lord, that that's exactly what you would do this evening as we open it. And I trust that in, in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, so Judges chapter 2. We're going to continue uh, going through the book of Judges. We made it uh, through an entire chapter last week. I was very proud of myself. We didn't read most of it, but <laughs> but we covered it, and that's, that's what's really important. Um, or is it not? I don't know. That's maybe heretical. Uh, but anyways, so we're in the second chapter this week, uh, and it's going to conclude the prologue of the book. So these two chapters put together spills a little bit over into the first uh, six verses of the next chapter, and then it's going to wrap up the prologue altogether. And uh, we talked about Israel's incomplete conquest of the promised land. God had promised that as they enter in by faith, he would grant them absolute victory. You come in and, and, and you, you know, again, not to make God sound bloodthirsty, but he said, I just want you to come in and just destroy and decimate and annihilate and just, just, just put down everyone that's in this land and it'll be your land. And I promise it to you. You just come in by faith. Just believe in me that I could do it. And, and they, they didn't do that. And we saw that, that already in the, in, I think it's the third verse of the first chapter that they were already faltering in their faith and, and, entering in through disbelief, and, and they ended up settling for this sort of partial victory um, as a result of their disbelief rather than absolute victory in what God had promised them. Um, but we continue this week picking it up, and, and we see that, that God himself comes to them and he confronts them. Hey, come on. And uh, we're just getting started. And, it's, uh, and she gets a plus too. <laughs> it's a very clap happy church. And uh, and <laughs> and and God Himself comes to them and confronts them. He doesn't leave them there in the dark. And we we read this verse uh, to conclude our time last week. Let's read it again. It was a dark time last week, so we needed to illuminate it just a little bit at the end. Um, chapter two, verse one. The angel. Of the Lord, and and very quickly, this is uh, what they call a Christophany or a theophany. It's uh, one of these appearances of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, and it's and you know that it's him, and it has to be him because he takes credit uh, for that which God alone has done. So no angel could do this; it had to have been uh, 
God himself manifest in the flesh before his Bethlehem birth. So the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And, and Gilgal means rolling away. It was the place where God promised them absolute victory. And, 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 and through him saying, I'm going to roll away all your enemies. They're just going to, it's going to be like a millstone just passed over them. It's just going to crush them. They're just going to be rolled away into oblivion. But now that they've gone from Gilgal to Bochim, and Bokim means weeping. And, and, it's, and it's this place that's, that's rife with symbolism. And they've gone from the promise of God and all that it had for them to this place of weeping and mourning their shortcomings. And God says to them, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. And God says, you know, I've been faithful to you. I've always been there for you. When have I ever abandoned you? When have I ever not, not upheld you? When have I ever broken a promise to you? I've always been there for you. And we have this temptation inside of us when we're, you know, in this kind of bokim place, when we're in this, this weeping and mourning place, when we're looking at the shortcomings of our life, whatever it might be in any situation that you might have, to, to go to this place and, and say, you know, God, where are you? And what are you doing? And why are you allowing this? And what's going on? And maybe, maybe we don't say it verbally, but, but it's often implicit in our prayers. You know, we just come before God and we're like, Lord, what are you doing? And you can hear the voice of God here saying, what am I doing? I'm doing what I've always done. I'm doing what I always will do, which is be nothing but faithful to you. I've always been good to you. I will always be there for you. No, it's, it's not about what I'm doing. I'm doing what I've always done. And we continue in verse 2. You, you, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? That's a terribly haunting question. It's a terribly haunting verse. And all week, it was just before me, you know, as I was studying this passage for, for you glorious people. Why have you done this? Are we going to, let's do the pause again. It feels right. You know, you've done it for everybody else. <laughs> what? what? Hey! <laughs> Nothing? Okay, there we go. <laughs> there we go. Good stuff. Why, continuing in this verse, why, why have you done this? Why, not, not for you. It's, it's okay that you're late. I'm not offended. I'll, I'll cry to Corinne later on tonight. But, but no, why have you done this? Why have you done this? And then, and, and, you know, every single time I, I think about it, 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 I always come up with the same answer. Why, and when God says, why, have you done this? And you consider there in, in, in verse 2. It's because in the moment, it seemed like the right thing to do. Right? 
Otherwise, you wouldn't have done it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have done it. We wouldn't have said it. We wouldn't have thought it. You know, why have you done this? God says that to you. And it's like, well, because at the moment, it seemed like the right thing to do. But that moment of foolishness can so easily become a thorn that torments me. And that's what we're going to see in Israel. It's the consequences of their actions wrought through this moment of stupidity. Now, therefore, I tell you in verse 3, I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bokin. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Now God says there's going to be a thorn. There's going to be consequences for your actions. It's unavoidable. You're going to reap what you've sown. And I think all of us, you know, maybe I'm overstepping and generalizing, but I think all of us feel the same way. All of us collectively would be like Israel this moment. God says there's going to be consequences for your actions. And what do you do? You cry out. You're like, oh, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And we weep and we wail and we're all very emotional. Oh, God, what do I have to do? Do I have to sacrifice something? What do I have to give up? Just let me make a deal with you to make it all better. You know, I, I cried, I, I, I lamented, I killed a goat. Does that make you happy, God? And we just want it all to, you know, God to just be like, okay, and then poof, and it's all gone. It's like, never happened. But oftentimes our actions set in motion a sequence that God just simply says, I'm going, I'm going to allow this to happen. I'm, and I just hope that you'll learn from it. I hope that you'll repent of it. I hope that you'll return to me in spite of it. You know, and, 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 and you can think of a person that maybe, and, 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 you know, you, uh, you younger folk are going to have to forgive me, but you can think of maybe someone that, that has a lot of promiscuous sex. And, and then, you know, he, he later finds that he has, a, he has a disease of some sort. And he can come before God and be like, God, I'm sorry. He rents his clothes and he cries out in agony and, and Lord, just forgive me and just, and, and I just you know, I, I, I'm sorry. But does that disease go away? Well, wow, that's a quick answer. <laughs> because there's there's consequences. You know, what a, what a strange spiritual climate we would live in if someone could just go out and have promiscuous sex whenever they wanted and then just come home and be like, oh, God, I'm sorry, and then just every night he's he's back and then, you know, out there doing it again, you know, and it's like all I got to do is just go home and pray and everything's fine at the end of the day. I should write a book, you know, how to how to be safe and promiscuous sex, you know, but you can't be, there's no assurance of it because there's consequences for those actions. You've set in motion a, a, a sequence, you know, it's, it'd be like me yelling at boo. And, and if I yelled at boo, 
you know, and this is this is Boo. I often call her Boo. And <laughs> that was uh, that was a little moment that I let you all in on. Um, but uh, <laughs> but but what what if I was at home and I yelled at Boo, and and then I then I got alone, and that was weird. And uh, don't whistle like that again. And <laughs> I don't know who that was, but. <laughs> Made me feel dirty, um, but uh, but what if I yelled at her? Then I got alone with God, and I was like, "Okay, God, I'm sorry." Now, does that mean that she's not going to be upset with me? Of course not. And Karine is shaking her head <laughs> because she's she's a woman and she knows. You know, it's like you know, it's, yeah, she's still going to be even if I apologized right to her. Chances are there would still be consequences for my actions. And again, Karine is shaking her head. What is happening in the Scotty house? But, uh, but you know, it's like there's still going to be consequences for those actions. You know, I mean, is she, still, she still reminds me of how I failed uh, to ask her to prom, despite her numerous flirtatious efforts that went unnoticed on my part. And that was 10 years ago. You know, it's like, she goes, you know, can you do the dishes or is it going to be like prom? Am I not being direct enough for you? You know, it's like, I mean, it's, it, there's always these consequences that come along with our stupidity. And, and Israel has done something stupid, just like we often do things that are stupid and we pay for them. There's consequences for them. And some of you, you know, are dealing with those things right now. Um, or you know somebody that's dealing with those things right now. And they're not easy, and they never are. But what you need to see in this text is the heart of God, who reminds you that he still loves you, and that he's always been there for you, that he always will be there for you, that he's not beating you in this. He's simply allowing this. Hopefully you learn from this. So we're often drawn towards these bad moments because they have this air about them. There's something appealing in them. And that's why I love the imagery that God himself chooses in calling this a thorn. You know, we're drawn to these things as if they're a rose. And then behind that rose, there's this terrible thorn. He says, you're going to be drawn towards this. There's going to be something in this that's appealing to you. It always is. Whatever it is. But you have to watch out for it because it's going to hurt you. It's going to inflict pain upon you. There's going to be consequences for trying to take it upon yourself. And, and God desires uh, for them to, to grow in this, to mature in this, to develop out of this. But as we'll see, beginning in verse 6 and, and through the, the sixth verse of the next chapter, that they never really do. And they're bound to repeat this same pattern over and again uh, throughout the 300-odd uh, years that we'll study in the book of Judges. And hopefully it won't take us quite that long to go through it. I'll try and speed up. And we'll begin in verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. 
and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, or Ephraim uh, north of Mount Gash. And after that, a whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asherahs. And in, in his anger against, the, against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them, who sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. And yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned uh, to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the ways of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. And in the next few verses in chapter 3, he lists these nations that we talked about last week. So for the sake of my tongue, I'm not going to try and repeat them. But he uh, concludes in verse 6 with Israel's dealings with these pagan nations. And in verse 6 it says, They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. <clears throat> so we begin in verse 10 and we see that this great generation had passed away. All the forefathers that served the Lord and walked in obedience to the Lord and, and acknowledged the Lord in all their ways. And, and this new generation had come up. And I actually heard someone say, uh-oh, when we, we read that a new generation had come up. And, and these were the second generation saints. The second generation saints settled in with the enemy. They made treaties with them. They accepted their boundaries. They were comfortable and complacent in the new land. And in their comfort and complacency, they absorbed 
these pagan nations' cultures, and including but not limited to the worship of their gods, Baal and Ashtoreth. Now, I'm sure you're all very familiar with, with Baal and Ashtoreth. Um, you know, they're talked about a lot in the in the Old Testament. They're commonly uh, spoken of in church. This generation was drawn to them. They were a generation that knew about the Lord, but they didn't know the Lord. They'd heard the stories of the Lord, but they didn't have a relationship with the Lord. So there was something in these two deities specifically that drew them. And, and I love mythology, uh, and I feel like it already in the second uh, message it's turning into somewhat of a nerdy study, because last week was numerology, this week it's going to be mythology a little bit. Forgive me. Um, it won't always be like that, you know, but uh, but anyways, um, it, the, the study of Baal and Asher is, is a difficult one to compile because many different cultures worshipped these two gods. They all had their different variations on the mythological background of these two gods. Um, uh, and and But, but the, if you could compile uh, a cumulative mythology of these two deities, you, you find out that, that often in the mythology, they're married to each other. And that's why they're linked together in scripture so often. They go together because they were a married couple. And you're like, well, I didn't hear that. I heard, I always heard that Baal and Ashtoreth were, were siblings. They were brother and sister to one another. That's also true. So <laughs> it's kind of, uh, kind of gross and unsettling in that way. They're, uh, they're often portrayed in mythology as brother and sister and as a married couple. But they're both fertility gods. Baal is uh, the god of rain. So he would make the land fertile, right? You'd produce crops. Uh, Baal represented personal wealth. Ashtoreth also a uh, fertility god, but not for the land, for people. She's often depicted as a multi-breasted idol, and she represented sensuality and fertility. In the Babylonian mythology, her name was actually Estar, which is where we get our word Easter, and the Babylonians' fertility symbols were bunnies and eggs. So, you know, it's like that's where we get our wonderful little tradition from, this pagan Babylonian religion. But I still I love the chocolate bunnies, so they're delicious. I'm not going to give that up. You know, let's be realistic here. Peeps, you can have those. Those are heretical. They're disgusting. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but the story goes that, uh, that Baal, he became powerful among the pantheon of gods, right? And, and this rain god, he's becoming very powerful, and all the other gods are looking at him, and they're going, you know, we got to take this Baal guy down a notch. Um, he's, getting, he's getting pretty full of himself, and uh, maybe he's getting a little out of control with his authority amongst the other deities. So they got together and they devised a plan. And they said, okay, we're going to get Mott. Mott is going to come in. He's going to take Baal down. So you're like, okay, well, who's Mott? Now, Mott is the god of death, right? So they bring in death. He's this grim reaper, grim reaper type of character. And uh, they bring in Mott. And they're like, Mott, we're going to trap him. You kill him. So they trick Baal into coming out into the desert, right? And, and so Baal's, he's doing his thing cruising through the clouds on his chariot uh, with his thundering voice. This is, this is actually true in their mythology. And, uh, and he's shooting his arrows of lightning down at earth, and he gets out into the desert, and that's exactly where the gods wanted him to be because what happens when you mix uh, dirt and rain? 
Yeah, you get mud. And so he gets all the way out into the desert, and then he gets stuck in the mud. So I don't know how a god gets stuck in the... It's a pretty weak god if you can get him stuck in the mud. But uh, anyway, so Bale's out there, and he's stuck in the mud. And, you know, wouldn't you know it, but Mott is bearing down on him. And so now, now, now death is coming to get him. But, lucky for him, his wife, Ashtoreth, is not only the god of love, she's also, conveniently, the god of war. So she comes in, and she attacks Mott, the god of death, and she kills him. She kills death. It's a pretty neat thing. Um, in the Ras Shamra tablets, it says this. She ripped him to pieces with a sharp knife, scattered his members with a winnowing fan, burned him in fire, ground him up in a mill, and over the fields she cast his members to be devoured by birds. Now that's some woman, right? <laughs> that's, 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 a, that's a wife slash sister for you. She, uh, she comes and she kills death, she slaughters them. And hopefully by now, and I can already see it on a couple of your faces, you're thinking, why are we talking about this? Who cares about this? What's the point of all this? Maybe I'll just text on my phone. You know, it's like, I, I said it because I saw it. Um, but, you know, it, you know, who, what's, what's the point of any of this? I could care less about this, but that's exactly my point. That's exactly my point. Who Maybe I should say how. How could anybody who knows the true and living God fall for such a fairy tale? Right? Because when you hear this, and you hear things like, okay, well, the God of rain got stuck in the mud. And then the God of death was coming at him, but his wife's wife sister attacked him. And then birds ate him. And, 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 and you're like, well, this isn't true. This is silly. This is, this is ridiculous. Who would believe this? It, but, but this is the point. It, it, it has nothing to do with the story. It, it has nothing to do with the truth of this story. It has nothing to do with facts. If you ever wanted to find the facts, you'd come up empty because there aren't any. But that's not what drew people. To this is not what drew Israel to this. It, it wasn't about facts. It was simply about fun, right? And that's the heartbreaking truth of this whole thing, that the second generation settled into the land. They had the law in their hand. They knew all the rituals. They knew all the rights. They knew all the do's and all the don'ts. But they didn't know God. And they were instantly attracted to this mythology. And how did that happen to them? Well, they came into the land and they saw a bunch of people worshiping the God of personal wealth. And they said, wow, I could have that. I can have all that stuff, all that neat, nice stuff. I could have money. I could have prosperity. They came into the land, the law in hand, and they saw people worshiping the god of sex. And they saw the temple prostitutes. And it was all very tempting. Everything looked fun and appealing. 
and the religion of their forefathers was a story to them, but it didn't satisfy them. And this is why I bring this up, is because very little has changed in the last 6,000 years. And this type of thing is still happening today. Yeah, where the mythology of the world and of our society, it always appears appealing when you have a ritualistic relationship with God. If it's just a list that's been handed down to you of what you can and cannot do, there's nothing to stop you. There's nothing to draw you away from the mythology of the world that surrounds you. When you look out there and you see these people with, with money and sensuality and it's bale and ashrith and you're pursuing wealth and interpersonal, interpersonal sensual relationships. And, and there is a certain realization that happened in my heart when I was preparing this message for the fourth time this, this afternoon <laughs> that I was going to be writing a message to a degree addressing people that would not be here, right? But to acknowledge the people that are here that could not, despite their best efforts, force those people to be here. And those people are your children. They're your brothers or sisters. They're your friends. And you know God intimately and personally. And you try and express that the best you know how. And you're like the, the forefathers that passed away. And you say, no, you don't understand. He delivered me. He saved me. He's everything to me. He's always been there for me. You, 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 you don't get it. He could be that for you. If you would simply allow him to. And they know the rules, and that's enough for them. And they don't love him. And in a way, they actually <laughs> resent him. Because he stands in the way of what they really want. And that's all wrapped up in the mythology of our society. What they really want is what Baal and Ashtoreth give. What they really want is that prosperity and that money. And they think, if I just have that, right? If I just had that, that would satisfy my soul, right? If I had that better job, if I had more money, if I had that stuff, the new stuff, the great stuff, then I'd be happy. If I just had that girl or that guy, uh, if I had love, to be in love, to give love, if I had that person that was my world, and here's the scary part about it, that person may very well be a Christian, right? But, but 
it's still more about that person than it is about the God that you share with that person. It's still Ashtoreth. You're still trapped in it. You're still wrapped up in the idolatry of it, though you might be someone that is professing to be a Christian just as much as they were professing to be Jews. God looks at them and he cuts through all the, all the, the, the mystery of it, all the ambiguity of it, and he says in verse 13, you have forsaken me. And what's the first thing that, that they would say? You know these people. You love these people. These people are in your lives. The first thing they would say is, no, I haven't. Of course, I haven't forsaken God. I know God. I know all the rules. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray from time to time. I haven't forsaken God. And how dare you judge me and say that I have. And now it's back on you. All right, that's what they do. And God says, you've forsaken me. Your heart is with Baal and Ashtoreth. And it's not with me, and I won't share you. I refuse to. I'm jealous of you. And so in verse 22, he says, I'm going to leave these people in the land, and I'm going to give you a choice. And you're going to choose one of us, because you can't have both of us. And that's the test. And the test is really simple. And it's the same for second-generation saints today. And God simply says, you can call out to me, and you will see me. With your own eyes. You can forget about your parents. Their time has passed away. And it's your time now. If you call out to me, I will make myself very clear to you. I will show myself strong for you. I'll be there for you. I'll go through this with you. If you call out to me, I will deliver you. I'll save you. And I'll be more than a story that somebody else told you about me. The fathers had told them, it was commanded of them, to pass down stories of the great exodus. And all throughout Deuteronomy, Joshua, they're reminded, this is what God has done for them. Now God says, I'm leaving these people so that you can have your own story of what I have done for you. So that your salvation isn't dependent upon what God did for somebody else. It can't be. It'll never be real if that's all it is. So he says, they're going to stay here. I'm not going to get rid of them. And if you call out to me, I'll deliver them in your sight. But if you want Baal and Ashtoreth, if you want personal wealth and sensuality, 
then you can have it. And I won't keep you from it. And you can see the heart of God breaking in this text. It's the heart of a father breaking for his children. As he sets before them this choice. You can choose me and you'll see me as more than a lawgiver. And it'll be more than a rite or a ritual. It'll be that which truly satisfies your soul. Or you can seek after the satisfaction that this world provides. You can reach for the roses and you'll prick yourself upon the thorns. And the choice is yours. And we're going to see, starting next week, the first judge raised up as the people call out to God, and as God shows himself to be the faithful God that he was, that he is, and that he always will be. So I pray that we all choose wisely. And let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this text that causes us to deal with our relationship with you, that brings us into maybe a little bit more clear of an understanding of why so many professing Christians falter in their relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, as we see your heart for them in this text, that it would give us a renewed passion to pray for them, to stand in the gap on their behalf, to draw them before you so that they can see you for themselves in their own lives and so that their faith won't be dependent upon us, that we wouldn't be their crutch, but that they would fall headlong upon you and see your truth and reality, the true and living God, active in their own lives. And so, Father, we entrust these people to you. Lord, we give all the glory to you. And we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, for your patience. Lord, that just as Israel, you will never leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, you're always there for us when we call out to you. So, Father, I do praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.